This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. As CTO of Onus Solutions, David Ramsey is at the forefront of the big data movement. With a passion for technology and a nuanced view on the subject, given his work in Africa, David shares how he expects data to change our lives in the future. Citing industry examples such as food and transportation, David's optimistic vision of the future imagines how data collection creates jobs and enables high net creativity. Hey, David, really cool to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sledge. It's my pleasure to be here. Could you give you know two or three minute background story, you, your work, and, and what you're into just so the uh, listeners can get to know you a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, currently CTO of Onus Solutions, that's O-N-I-S, not O-N-U-S. Uh, we're a, a data and a, um, a telco-focused SI, so we are driving towards the AI implementation in the telco segment. Um, I came to this at a very indirect passion. I was CEO of Jadora. It was a carbon offset company in the Democratic Republic of Congo, of all places. So we were trying to create carbon offsets and sell them on the voluntary and uh, involuntary market. And of course, we run into crazy political situations lately, and we had the untimely passing of our CEO, uh, Don Tuttle. So uh, it was untimely, but it was a fantastic experience and one a lot of people don't have. I spent a lot of time in country and a lot of time here. Uh, I spent some time at Microsoft. My last role was I ran uh, OEM sales out of Dubai. So I got to see uh, the higher part of the disposable income in Africa and some of the, the very bottom poverty levels. It was a, a life-changing experience, to be honest. Um, had a tour of duty also at HPE and AT&T Wireless. And uh, my formal background and education is a PhD in chemical engineering at the University of Texas. Fantastic. Very cool uh, experience at a worldwide there. I bet you learned so much about, you know, just different cultures and, and in that tech ecosystem across. across oh, abs- abs- absolutely. Uh, you know, and it kind of is driving where my passion is today. I've always had a passion for technology, but when you see the segment of people that just simple things change, not just a life, but a family, it really drives uh, where you want to spend the next lives that you're doing, next things you're doing too. And prior to our, our discussion here, before we were recording, you, you talked about the, uh, I guess it was the technology adoption of, you know, the next billion people. That's, that's a huge vision. I know, you know, we get Zuckerberg talking about things like that. Uh, just wondering, you know, what's, what's your uh, area of, of interest and, and thought process there from the, that futurist perspective? Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, just, I'll make three statements and tell me, tell me when this year is that you were thinking of. If I was to tell you that we have income inequality has climbed, it's at the highest levels ever, that there's median wages and living standards have flattened and the middle class is stagnant, but we're on the edge of a new technology and we all see it coming, but we can't see the actual impact yet. What year would you think we're living in? I think you'd be pre-industrial revolution and I think you'd be somewhere in the 1940s and I think you're now. You are the first person ever to get that right. So the, the, the pre-industrial part is called Ingalls Pause, of course. So when people talk about all the issues we have today, that time frame had no middle class. And if you look at the time today, you know, by 2020, the World Bank estimates half the population of this world will be classified as middle class. 
it varies country to country, of course, but that's three and a half to four billion people will be defined as middle class. That's never before happened in the country. So if you look at the, you mentioned, you know, the first industrial revolution, we've had the second, which is the age of science and mass production. Third is really the rise of digital technology. What I'm, I'm going towards is the fourth revolution will be to focus on that middle class for the first time ever. It'll really be the fusion of, of digital and biological and physical. And, and it's not bounded by a, a country or region or border and definitely no wall. <laughs> this is three and a half billion people that are in Maslow's hierarchy. If you think about it that way, they're at the age of enlightenment. They want to attain their personal goals and their personal best. And that is the mass, that one to one and a half billion of folks from 12, 13, 14 to 30, that cloud technologies and data and AI are, are pristine for. So that's where, you know, being in Africa at the bottom side and the top side, when I think about it that way, we're on the precipice of something that's totally, totally different. And for me, it's incredibly exciting. So what do we, what do, we do with that? Those of us in the, the technical industries, I imagine some people hear that, they see dollar signs and other people <laughs> hear that and they, they say social justice, you know, and, and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. or, you know, okay, where do we go now? No, yeah, you know, it, it's huge, obviously. And I, I, a lot of more smart people know much more about this than I do. I look at it strictly from a technology side. And when I think about it, it's, it's, it's the old principle. It's just now data. That will be where is data, what is data, what is its value? So instead of being data powered, like everybody thinks they're data powered, it's really what is data driving? What is this data driving? And for us, and for me, if you think about a great example would be uh, autonomous vehicles. When they first started coming out in 2010 and 2009, it was going to change the transportation industry, change the transportation industry. Well, yes, but no. What it's going to change is the insurance companies, mechanics. It's going to change the Fed and SLED's allocation of monies for roads. It's going to change safety. It's going to change everything else around that. So that one simple segment that everyone thought was going to be dramatically different will have impact well beyond that. And that's what will happen in, in this revolution. And I believe and what I'm passionate about is the AI side and the data side. I'm sure it will be go way beyond that ledge, but for me, it's around the data side. And I, and I think if, as you go into this calendar year, you're seeing a lot of terms pop up like data curation and data valuation that really haven't been used before because everyone thought they knew the life cycle of data or they thought they knew the value of their data because Google told them that, uh, you know, this advertising is worth this or Amazon believes a subscriber is worth this. But that's not really the case when you have these massive data lakes, a massive databases and data warehouses over tens and tens of years with multiples and exponential data coming in. So for me, it's, it's, you know, AI is only good data in, data out. So you can have the best data model or the best data models and neural networks that you want, but without the right data, knowing what the value of that information is, that how do you really know what the value of that output is? I read some study that I can't remember where I, I saw it, but in, in an article that, you know, you've got your sort of, if you think of three types of data or archetypes of data, you know, you've got your structured and you've got your sort of, sort of structured, you know, like, so you'd be like, maybe you've got your relational databases and then you've got right. your, I don't know, XML or, or JSON or something of that nature, you know, sort of proceeding in the unstructured direction. Then you have fully unstructured data. And, and now the only, the growth pattern is that the fully unstructured data is, is on the exponential growth curve while the other two are just linear. So now we need to figure out what do we do with 
you know, just this massive data collection of, of everything and yeah. to, to make <clears throat> not just, you know, sort of targeting ads out of it, but what do you take oh. that and then make some, you know, sort of better contributions to the world? I agreed. And to use your example, if you think about a, a data set, no matter how massive or small, right? The, the data set and the value to, to you as an individual and as a company, it's got really six key elements, right? It has an intrinsic value, which is how correct and complete, kind of a boring block and tackling, but it's kind of the fundamental elements of the data. There's a, there's a cost and a risk part of it. What happens if I lose that data? There's a market value, right? I could sell that data externally. And there's an economic value. How does it help my EBITDA or my bottom line internally? There's a performance data. How does it affect the business drivers of my company? I mean, really impact the business drivers? And then there's a business value. How is it relevant to the mission and the core business of the company? So it doesn't really matter how big it is. If, if one doesn't know that, then how in the world can you create a Watson model or a, a Python model or any other technical implementation on top of that to get a, a key result for your business? You can't even define what the value of the data going into it is. Hey guys, Tyler from Gun.io here. I know when you think of gun.io, you think of freelance engineers. We're actually rolling out a new product offering that has to do with contract for hire and full-time placement. We're getting a lot of requests from our companies and from our freelancers to have a seamless product offering for full-time engagement at the W-2 level. So if you're interested in learning about that more and having a way to do that seamlessly and much more cheaply than the current market offerings, head over to our link at gun.io slash podcast and click on the banner to learn more. Yeah, I mean, you're... you're You've got sort of a asset valuation model then yes. uh, for data, which which is an interesting paradigm because you know you wouldn't have thought prior that the, you know the data itself could be valued in some way. You might have previously seen you know goodwill on a balance sheet or something yeah. of that nature, but what you're saying now is that there's a material and quantifiable value of data assets, um, which if you pair with the previous sort of, well, it's growing exponentially, then maybe the deal is all about collecting the data if in fact we can execute against it and, and that a growing percentage of the value comes from the data less than from the human or, or physical elements. You know, absolutely. And it, it, it stuns me. You know, we, we do multi-million dollar projects, uh, migrations and consolidations. And if you ask that question, what we just discussed, half the VPs and the CXOs that are funding those projects can't answer that question. I mean, that to me is stunning. And, and there's also is a shift in paradigm thinking about, well, what, what do we need to do to justify this? And if you think about the reams of data that you were alluding to that haven't even happened yet and that we can't even understand the impact of, how can this, this data culture not exist? Because that is a foundation for a data-driven company, right? It should be. So, okay, you know, we're probably five years. It's not even that long away from where, you know, the AIs go ripping through everything and all of us, you know, let's just sit back like, like Wally and we drink a, a smoothie and get that in a chair and float around. I mean, you know, there's a lot of enabling forces that I think you just said. And in the conversations I've had with a lot of AI leaders, you know, the, the big thing everybody focuses on is going to be that, you know, look, this is about human augmentation, not replacement. Yes, agreed. And uh, I don't know, you know, what, what do you think around, around those things? You know, because I think it's difficult to picture business where you don't have to do the things that many of us do now. 
Agreed. I mean, I guess the augmentation part, I would, I would rephrase that and re-message that, that I think it's, it's about the extended efforts that we can do. So in the example I used before about autonomous vehicles, the mechanic isn't going away. She may be going to do something else. The Fed slit funds that are a fixed amount, so it's a zero-sum game, they're not going away and disappearing. They're going to be reallocated to something else. So in terms of the, the actual human impact, the overall, I, I would suggest and argue that the overall impact is positive. It's just a redirection of the effort level and concentration. And maybe an example I would think of that comes to mind because it's been the papers all the time is retailers lose about 8% of the revenue because I walk in, I want Cheerios, there's no Cheerios, and I have to buy cornflakes. I say, screw it, I'm out the door. Or I want a red, red delicious apple, they only have Granny Smith. So 8% of the revenue is lost by that. So what they're trying to do, of course, is put cameras everywhere and figure out when I grab a box of Cheerios and it's no longer on the shelf. And then because other retailers are actually doing fulfillment out of their retail stores, this pressure is a calculable real revenue loss that they're trying to find a solution to. And AI is an obvious example of that. So if I have a data scientist and I'm taking all their 264 cameras, putting all the data in, 50 cameras in a store, I'm scrubbing it up, this pre-calc pre, uh, stuff, I put it into these data models, I'm scrubbing it down to RGBs of 264 bits, I can calculate, in this example, as just as an exact example where no one's losing their job, it's just being re-vectored to go back to the warehouse just in time, put the box back on the shelf based on new information that they're calculating. So it's, it's not a, a loss, a net loss, because I'm kind of an old th thermodynamics guy, right? There's you know, entropy never goes away, right? So it's not a net loss. It's just Revectoring the current activities to be augmented by the data set, not augmenting my, my activity per se. My activity may go away, but another one will arise, right? Yeah, I love that. You know, the thermo and your uh, your chemical engineering background, you know, coming out there. So, you know, sort of the preservation of matter and energy, you know, indefinitely, just in sort of a, a different configuration. Yeah, and you know, in another example that kills me because I'm a football fan. Um, the, the LA Rams, right, moved back to LA from St. Louis. They're building this huge stadium down there. And it'll be this integrated work-life, drink-sleep complex with a football stadium, theaters. It'll have retail. It'll have restaurants, bars. So if you think about an application of huge data sets and AI, when I go in there and I'm a frequent user of Chili's Restaurant and it knows that, every other establishment will know I'm a frequent user of Chili's and what my preferences are. So that actual person asking what my preference is, that goes away. But the actual person fulfilling that preference in, because I'm buying a Kate Spade bag for my wife, but I don't like blue, I want red, can I see what red looks like? And they flash it on a, an a, on a VR AR screen and they fulfill it the next day. That's a new activity. That's, some, that's, a, that's a net created job that didn't exist before. Yes, some things will go away, but the net creativity, I think it will increase to your point exponentially depending on the data. It's a good vision. It's a good vision. I like reading about it. Um, let me ask you this tactical things here. So you get to obviously think about big ideas. Um, take yourself back to career development up to this point and, you know, sort of tactical success factors in your, in your career, in your technology career. How could you advise, you know, people who are, um, you know, out there, in our case, writing code and right, deploying right. servers and, you know, all those things. So, you know, what are the behavioral traits that kind of allow you to, to be a big thinker and to apply that in a, in a meaningful way to the business? 
No, that's a great question. Um, it's, it's a question I, I ask a different way to people I hire is that, um, does, do you want to get your hands dirty, right? You can't run a business, know a business from sales to technical if you, if you aren't willing to get your hands dirty and do the business and know the business. And I find a lot of people like to say they know it, but don't really understand it. And that's hard work. It's getting your feet on the ground. It's actually coding. It's doing all the things you thought you maybe had left, but to really understand the, the pitfalls and the, and the successes and where you're strong. There's no way to do that without understanding it deeply. And for me, I find I have to do it. Um, the example I'll use is kind of a success and failure. So it was a dual edged sword. So I ran a team in Africa. Uh, we sold 22 people. We sold OEM for Microsoft. I thought I was this really smart guy coming from the U.S. and I could do it because I did it in the U.S. I got my lunch handed to me. The first six months, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how the channels worked. I wasn't communicating effectively to my team because English was a second language to everybody. So I had to really step back and refresh, who, who am I? What am I doing? Do I really know what I'm doing here? And the answer was no, I didn't. So I spent the next three months to four months. I visited everyone. I went on sales calls with those guys. I understood how they really used the tools, what they didn't like about them. And this culture was very different. I had the Northern Sahara, Sub-Saharan Africa, I had Middle East. So it was a, it was a humbling, humbling experience and, and rewarding. Sometimes we blew out our numbers, but we couldn't do that until I failed. And I, it was me failing, not them. I had to recognize that I was the, you know, the throat that needed to be choked, so to speak. And once I did that, everything was fine. But that self-realization, I think, is also very, very important. The humility then of the humility always. And, and always. Like, I don't, I don't know. Right. The three most yeah. powerful words. And I, I always like to say, follow that up with, but, but let's go find out. Yeah. And I would add right before that, I'm sorry. I don't know. Let's go figure it out. Yes, absolutely. That's a great insight. You know, I, I don't think we can do better than that. I'm going to, I'm going to say uh, thank you, David, for joining us today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And anytime, Ledge, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.